Well, we've been talking about big faith over the last three weeks. This is the fourth week of the series. And not so much about big faith being the size of your faith as much as where your, sh- where your faith is focused. The willingness to trust, rely on, and cling to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 11.1 1 has kind of been our cornerstone scripture. So Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. And Hebrews 11.1 1 is the f- first verse in that scripture. And it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Other translations say that confidence is called certainty. And the assurance is called evidence or proof. So our eyesight helps us have evidence or proof of what we see. It helps us to assess our environment and see things and, and be assured that they're there. Our faith is kind of the sense that helps us see things in the spiritual world, to see how God is working in our lives. So as we grow in our faith, we get to see more of how God is working in the areas around us. And faith, we talked about faith, inter- our faith intersecting with God's faithfulness. And as that happens, our faith grows. We see it more, and that allows it to grow. We become increasingly confident, increasingly assured the more that we're aware that it's happening. And we've been going over, by the end of next week, we'll have five ways that we're talking about ways to grow your faith, the five Ps. And the first one is practical faith. And the example Matt gave there was during the storm, the disciples, their focus and their faith was in the boat, not on Christ. And the idea of having a pat. A practical faith is, can be a long, inconsistent journey. For me, this is a lot what my faith journey has looked like. So I got to be, I believe in him, I accepted him. But I had a lot of detours and wrecks <laughs> and wrong turns and traffic jams along the way. And I'm guessing that's the case for some of you in here as well. There's a Zach Williams song called um, That'll Preach. And one of the lines in that song is, turn my mess into a message. And that is definitely one that resonates with me. The next week, the second week, we talked about private disciplines. And one of those was Bible memorization. For me, one of those had been putting a verse in the mirror in my bathroom so I see it on a regular basis. We talked about tithing and giving. We talked about solitude and taking time to hear God. When you take time to listen, you can hear him more. That applies at home as well. If you guys want to try it, I found that that works. Then last week we talked about pivotal circumstances and the positive or negative things in our life that kind of change our spiritual trajectory. So for me, one of those was the mission trip, the first mission trip I took. That was a huge shift for me. When my grandfather passed away, he's an important person in my life, that was a huge shift for me. Some of my personal relationships that I've had, the way those have affected me, those have been some pivotal circumstances for me. But this week, we're going to talk about personal ministry. And what we're going to talk about with personal ministry, as we go through this, I really want to demystify it. I want to take some of the pressure off, because that sounds like work, right? But we're going to hopefully make it seem less like that. So when I hear pivotal circumstances, pivotal circumstances have had a lot to do with my personal ministry. What I do with them, what we do with our pivotal circumstances can help or hinder our personal ministry. So when I hear the word pivot, I can't help but think of this. 
Maybe some of you are the same way. So, so if you don't know the show Friends, Ross bought a couch. He's trying to get it up the stairs. He's got a plan. He's got it written out. He's got assignments of what people need to do in the plan. Like he's got the whole thing planned that's going to get this couch into his condo. As you can see, it doesn't work. He tries to force it. And that's what we do with God, right? We try to create our own personal circumstances sometimes. We try to create our own opportunities, and sometimes it's the wrong place and the wrong time, and we end up worse off. The way this episode ends is they cut the couch in half. Yeah, he's still got a couch, but you minimize the impact. It was a bad plan. He tries to return it after that, and she gives him four bucks for it, and he takes it. But our personal ministry, it can seem really daunting. It can seem like that couch stuck on the stairs. There are 2.38 billion Christians in the world. And public speaking is one of people's biggest fears. So I'm guessing of those 2.38 billion Christians in the world, a good chunk of them didn't come to Christ because of a sermon or because of a dynamic speaker or because someone was on a stage somewhere. I'm betting a good chunk of them and a bunch of us in here today, it happened slowly, faithfully, over time, in neighborhoods, at work, at home. That's how it gets to 2.38 billion, by us, people like us. So my hope is that my alignment with what God has put on my heart aligns with the opportunities I have around me, and I'm able to see that and connect those dots. My faith intersecting with his faithfulness. And I, as I thought about ways to grow our faith as we're going through these, they really kind of build upon one another to result in big faith. So if we don't have practical faith, if we haven't accepted Christ and don't have a practical faith, we're probably not investing any time in private disciplines. If we don't have practical faith and are experiencing some private disciplines, we're probably missing some pivotal circumstances that are around us each and every day. If we don't have practical faith, not practicing private disciplines, missing pivotal circumstances, we're invariably going to limit our personal ministry. So these really do intersect and build upon one another. So that sounds difficult, right? That sounds like work. Sounds like more to do. None of us need more to do. But there's this quote by Paul Tripp that I really like, and he starts, about, starts with talking about what it's not, what personal ministry is not. And it says personal ministry is not about always knowing what to say. It's not about fixing everything in sight that is broken. Personal ministry is about connecting people with Christ so that they are able to think as he would have them think, desire what he says is best, and do what he calls them to do, even if their circumstances never get fixed. So our expectations can get in the way of our ministry. Like we can invest in someone with a personal ministry, but, but if it doesn't change, like, yeah, I know you've had a 14-year problem, but I've spent the last eight days with you, and it's not making any difference. Like our expectations can limit our ministry, and we're not responsible for the outcome. We're responsible for our availability. The quote go, goes on to say, it involves exposing hurt, loss, and confuse people to God's glory so that they give up their pursuit of their own glory and live for his. A friend of mine, Justin, that has a church down in Charlotte, a house church, he posted this the, just the other day. I saw it yesterday. It said, 
He said, it's not about taking God from one place to another, like he's just in the backpack and we're taking him different places. It's about showing people the God that's already there. It's about exposing them to him through you. That's what your personal ministry is. We get to be co-workers with Christ. We've already had the interview and we accepted him. We were hired for the job. He's empowered us. He's equipped us and to our assigned areas of responsibility. And, and when I talk about our assigned areas of responsibility, check this out. In Acts 17, verse 26, it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Determined their appointed time. We're in it. Determine their boundaries. We're there. The time for your personal ministry is now and here because that's where God has placed us. So I started thinking about the relational circles, the circles around us, the people that we're able to relate to. And as, as you look at this, look at the circle, think about who are some of the people in each one of these. Who's in the family bucket? Who's in the work bucket? Who's in the play bucket? Who's in the divine appointment bucket? And I'm going to talk about each of these and I'm going to share some of my wins and losses in these individual buckets as well. So we'll start with family. And, and this coming year, we have the wonderful dynamic duo of Thanksgiving and the election season. So I know we're all looking forward to that dinner. So family could be difficult. There's history, and history could be positive or negative. There are ongoing relationships. And family, like it's, it's kind of like the military. We get issued family. We don't pick them, right? There's some people in our families that maybe we wouldn't spend a lot of time with if it wasn't for them being family. And then we have non-believers in some of our families. And we have, we have to be careful not to have expectations of these folks that don't know Christ. We know Christ, they don't, and we're holding our Christ-filled expectations on them. Not fair. So one time, one example, my grandfather was in the ICU towards his last days. And I have a Bible in the ICU with him. It's like 5 in the morning. My uncle comes in. And he says, uh, so you read the Bible now? Kind of accusatory. And I said, sometimes when I think I need to. Sometimes when I think I need to was my answer. I was embarrassed. I was convicted. And I'm not comparing myself to Peter, but when he denied Christ, I felt like I was denying Christ in that moment. When we look at work, if you're working full-time, you're working 40 to 50 hours a week. If you're home raising kids, that, that job's probably 120 hours a week. That's a lot of time and opportunity to have a personal ministry. And there's limitations in the workplace, too. There are some workplaces that don't allow you to share your faith, that don't allow you to um, express uh, that you're a Christian. So for me, one of my big struggles was that when I went to work, I would clock in the work and clock out of Jesus. Like, I'd get to work. That's work. I'll check back with him later. I was guilty of that for years. But then one moment changed that for me. I was in the break room, and I was telling some stories of the old Mike. Some not-so-great stories about the old Mike that were funny, but not ideal. And as I'm telling them, they knew who I was now. They knew, they'd seen the change in me. They didn't know that person, but they knew who I was now. And they said, what changed? What's, what was different? 
why are you not that guy anymore? So then I'm panicking, and probably in the back of my mind, I'm remembering that conversation with my uncle, but I'm panicking, and I'm looking for my work words for that. What are the work words that I would use to explain the difference? The answer is Jesus, and that's what I said. I said one word, Jesus. A couple people walked out. The rest stayed. I got to share more about that. I said Jesus out loud at work. And admittedly, embarrassingly, it was a little uncomfortable for me at first. Ever since then, I've been wearing a cross to work, this cross right here. I started wearing it to work, putting it on in the morning and taking it off when I got home to remind myself that who I am before and after work is who I need to be at work. I started, we had to change our password every 90 days, and I started using scripture for my password. So I had to, for every 90 days, I was focusing on different scripture. I had to do tangible things to help to remind myself who I am at work. And my birthday, several years after that incident, my birthday at work, um, I, I walked in and they gave me a poster and I had my life verse on it. Micah 6.8 is my life verse. Micah 6.8 is on this poster and they've all signed it and given it to me as a gift to hang in my office. Scripture hanging in my office at the place where I was scared to say the word Jesus out loud. Believers and non-believers signed it and hung it up. I still have it. All the accomplishments I've had at work, like none of them compared to that. I'm more proud of that one than any raise or promotion that I ever got. When we look at play, we look at kids' sports and golf courses and hanging with neighbors. Would they know we're Christians? A friend of mine said, if he used to challenge himself, if the people around me were in court and people, someone asked them about me, would I be guilty of being a Christian? Do they know enough about me? Do they see enough in me to know that I'm a Christian? And then divine appointments. I've been on both sides of those. When I was in high school, there was this guy named Joe Davis. And I wasn't, I didn't know Christ yet. He definitely did. And he tried to share his faith with me. He tried to share the gospel with me. And I wasn't open to it. He went he tried to have a divine appointment, and I missed it. And granted, he probably didn't do it in the most constructive way he could have done it, but I, I, I missed it. I was at, several years ago, I was preparing the first time I was ever doing a message. I was at Main Street Coffee in Huntersville. I'm sitting there, and I have a Bible sitting out. And this guy make, makes eye contact with me, uncomfortable eye contact. And then he says, is that a Bible? And I said, yep. And then I, no, I didn't say anything else. I said, yep. Missed it. Missed another divine appointment. I went back to Main Street, Main Street two other Sundays at the same time, hoping I was going to run into that brother again. But I don't think, think God just wanted me to have that moment to recognize that I'm missing moments. So other times I haven't missed it. Like I was walking out of church one time and a guy was walking into church. And something just told me, this Holy Spirit nudge, I don't know if you guys have ever had that, where you're just, I'm supposed to talk to this person. And I knew him a little bit, didn't know him real well, and I said, I said, hey, bro, good morning, how's it going? And he just stopped and said, my wife moved out this morning. Divine appointment. When I see someone in Panera or at a coffee shop reading the Bible, I always walk up and say, hey, good book. Creating a divine appointment. When I used to travel, I used to fly a lot for work, coast to coast, I was on planes a lot. And when I would have a Christian book early in my walk, 
I'd have the Christian books, and I, and I would put it in the pocket, or I'd put it in my bag, and I wouldn't leave it out, because I don't even know why. I think it was just the enemy trying to get me to be embarrassed about it, but, but then I started leaving it out. Had multiple divine appointments, just by something that simple. And sometimes these divine appointments can be years in the making. Like, I have a friend that I was in the military with, really good friend, and we did single military guy things for a long time together. That was our relationship. Then we went our separate ways. We both got out. We found Christ separately, and two decades later, ended up reuniting. And this brother had gone through a divorce. He lost his kids, had addiction issues, lost his job. And because of that divine appointment 20 years ago, I was one of his first calls. And sometimes it takes patience. A lot of times, my wife and I will be in a restaurant. We'll just feel a nudge to offer to pray for a waitress or a waiter that's there. I've done that several times when I was traveling for work as well. And how can I pray for you? I've never had one say no. We have had several come sit at the table and in tears share their prayers. My wife's still in contact with one of the waitresses we met up in the mountains one time. Opportunities all around us. So I'm going to talk about a relational circle that had a huge impact for the kingdom. I, I call this the ultimate divine appointment. So I'm going to talk to you about a guy named Saul for a minute. In Acts 8.3, it says, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering the house, entering house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. Ravaging the church, dragging people, entering houses, putting them in prison. How would we deal with that person now if we knew about someone doing that? How would we deal with them? It goes on in chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. Not a likable guy. Not, not someone that you're probably going to invite to Thanksgiving. So say, let's just take it out of the context of Scripture and just say we're hearing about that person doing those things now. Would we approach him? Would we fear him? Would we pray for him? And as you apply it a little closer to home, like who do we avoid? Or who do we fear? Or who do we maybe spend more time criticizing than praying for? And it made me think of a few areas in our society right now. So I read something this week that says our society is more, is, it's, it's the most divided it's been in my lifetime. And they said the, it's more divided than it's been since the Civil War. Since we were shooting at each other. People are still shooting at each other. But as you look at these divisions in our country, sports. If we were as passionate about Christ as we are about our sports teams, what difference can we make for the kingdom? I, there was a company in Texas that they would not hire people from a rival school because of the football rivalry. Football stopped someone from getting a job. When you see someone of a different color, a different race, does that affect how approachable they are to you? 
that's how I grew up. That's the house I grew up in, and I've been spending decades undoing that. If you see someone that's Muslim or Jewish or Hindu, are we, are we as confident and comfortable with our faith? Are we confident and comfortable enough in our faith to discuss their faith with them? I was at a church, and there was someone that had a sticker on their car that supported one political candidate on one side of the house. Someone left the church because that, they didn't want to go to church with someone that voted for that person. There was another example. Someone was in, people were in a life group for years. One of the people in the life group voted for someone that another person in the group didn't agree with. They left the group because of who someone voted for. They were, and those two examples were different candidates, and it was the same church. People left the group and the church because people were on different sides of the fence over politics. So the list of reasons not to engage people can sometimes be a lot longer than we think. So you may know what happens next in this story in Scripture, but we're going to take a look at Acts 9.3. Now as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now as he, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I love that question. Who are you, Lord? There's a couple other times in Scripture where that comes up. In, in Matthew 27, Pilate says, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Matthew 16, Jesus is speaking to, to his disciples. Well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And, that, and that's, that's the question where our practical faith starts. We have to answer that for ourselves. Who do we say he is? Goes on to chapter 9, verse 6. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and through his, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Three days pops up a lot in scripture, doesn't it? So this guy went from ravaging churches, dragging people, scripture tells us, putting them in shackles, throwing them in prison, to being blinded with his eyes open, led by the hand, told what to do. That's a divine appointment. That is a pivotal circumstance. So it wasn't just for Paul either. It wasn't just a pivotal circumstance for Paul. What about the guys that were with him that stood speechless? It was a pivotal circumstance for them too. It's also a pivotal circumstance for the guy we're about to hear about. If you look, there's uh, scripture cards in your seats and around you. Uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 18. That's going to be our read-along scripture today. And I'm reading out of the NLT this morning. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he could see again. 
But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to other believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. These passages, when we hear these and when I've heard these over the years, like a so often focus on Saul like that's that's Saul's conversion moment that's what I call it but what about the role of Ananias he's God's co-worker in these verses so he tried to cancel the divine appointment right just like my buddy Joe in high school like I tried to cancel that appointment like Jonah how did that go when he canceled his appointment but maybe someone's played that role in your life has reached out to you, has followed a prompting to meet you where you're at in your blindness to share the love of Christ. Maybe, you, maybe you've been that person for someone else. What a blessing. And I'd love to hear those stories. I'm sure some people in this room have them. So as we look at the relational circles again, think back to who came to mind as you looked at these different buckets, family, work, play, and divine appointments, would the obedience and faithfulness of Ananias change any of those relationships for you? Can you even imagine the person who's in your mind right now that's the farthest from Christ having a dramatic conversion like Paul did? Later in Acts, just after, we talked about those verses about the appointed times and places that he puts us in. Right after that, Acts 17, verse 27 says, The hope was that they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Feel around for him and find him. You know who said that? Saul. The guy who spent three days feeling around for him to find him in his blindness. I don't think it's coincidence that Saul is the one that uses that, that he uses that example, that feeling around for him is sometimes what it feels like. And I'm sure he felt that spiritually and physically during those three days. And it also says he's not far, not far from you, not far from me, not far from that person that you're thinking about right now. And we look at these building blocks again, and we talked about them building upon one another one helps support the other and, and all play a role in establishing our big faith. But there's a reason that outside of our apprehension that that's not always as easy as we'd hope it would be. And that's because there's an enemy seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. There's an enemy trying to build walls between those individual parts of growing our faith. Because he wants us, if we take a step towards practical faith, and accepting Christ for the first time, he doesn't want us to be open to pivotal circumstances or 
start establishing private disciplines, you've accepted Christ. That's good enough. He tries to keep you in that box. He wants us to be content maybe with a private discipline like giving. I'm giving. I'm not going to pray because I'm giving. Or I'm not going to give because I'm praying. He'd like us to be content just with one of those maybe. He, he wants us to feel at peace without being open to pivotal circumstances. I'm ex- I've accepted Christ. I'm giving. I'm praying. I don't need to be open to interacting with other people. And then he wants us to have a small faith, not a big faith. He wants us to have a faith that doesn't lead to personal ministry. Next week, Matt's talking about provisional missions. I don't know exactly what he's going to talk about. I don't know what he's going to share. But I, I'm pretty sure the enemy is not going to be okay with that one being connected to the others as well. So be aware that there's a real and present danger with the enemy that wants to isolate us. So I was thinking about a practical step. How can we keep this front of mind as we think about our personal ministry? And something my wife and I did several years ago, we had on our refrigerator, it was a piece of paper or sometimes a dry erase, three words, praises, people, and petitions. And then there were spaces under each one. So throughout the week, we would write, what are our praises? What are the things we're thankful for? What are the things we've seen God do that week? And walk by and write that on there. Then people, who are the people we're praying for? So that next step of the step between, I'm going to pray for you, and then actually praying for the person. We've all done that at least once, right? But they're on your refrigerator now, and you're seeing them every morning. And then petitions, the things we're asking for. So we start with praising him and the things he's done. We put others before ourselves and pray for other people. And then we have the petitions, the things that we're asking him to meet us in. And those all end up becoming connection points. So what we do, we'd write these over the week, and then on Sunday we'd get together and talk through them. So there were names and situations that I didn't know that were on this list. I'm like, yeah, I'll pray for Laura. Who's Laura? Granted, there's a decent chance she told me who Laura was three days ago and I forgot, but still, that's not the point. (laughs) It became a connection point for us, but also it became a connection point between us and God as well. Because we're able to focus on the personal ministry opportunities that we had with other people and our petitions. So there's a favorite quote of mine. I've had this quote for years, and it I had trouble finding out what book, because I, I wanted to give credit to the author that I got the book from, got the quote from. Couldn't find it. I did find out, everybody in this room might know this except me, but if you put quotes around some text and Google it, it'll show you what book it's from. So that's really cool. Do that if you run out of stuff, stuff to do later during halftime. So this quote is, I've had this in my office for well over a decade. And it starts again with what we don't have to do. You don't need to have all the answers to every theological question. You don't have to master a polished gospel presentation that you mechanically recite whether people want to hear it or not. You don't have to pretend that you're the next Billy Graham. All you have to do is authentically follow Christ in your own life and ask him to ambush you with opportunities. I love that word, ambush. And then trust that he's going to use you in spite of And sometimes even because of your shortcomings, foibles, come back to that, and quirks. Quick show of hands, who knows what the word foibles means? Exactly. I didn't either. So it means character flaws, but I had to use it because it was the book. So foibles, you you could use that at home today too. Simply put, our role is this, be ready and willing because God is always able. After all, he's the great evangelist. 
were merely the tools that he uses to fulfill his mission of redeeming the world one individual at a time. So the name of that book is called The Unexpected Adventure, but the quote after the title on the cover of the book is Taking Everyday Risks to Talk to People About Jesus. That's a pretty good definition for personal ministry. Taking everyday risks to talk to people about Jesus. So big faith in your personal ministry can be one yes away. You don't have to crowbar Jesus into every single conversation. So if we're at a restaurant and there's maybe a waitress or a waiter that that we want to offer prayer to, we don't like try to crowbar him. It's like, hey, that plate looks hot. You know what else is hot? Hell. <laughs> uh, can we talk to you about Jesus real quick? Like that, you're forcing that. Pivot, right? That's not what you do. We, we, we want to follow Jesus as an example. What he calls you to. The nudge you felt to maybe have a conversation with someone, to create a divine appointment, to share your faith with someone, the nudge you've had to maybe put scripture on your desk at work. One of my buddies set a Bible on his desk, and that yielded fruit almost immediately. The nudge you felt to pray before a meal in public, outside of your house, maybe with a family member that you don't usually do that around. Saying yes to allowing yourself to be ambushed with an opportunity. We, so often we have these self-imposed expectations that we put for ourselves, right? So I've, I've heard this several years ago. When we think about in terms of like a number line, so like number, negative 10 is the person that's farthest from Christ that you can think of. And positive 10 we'll say is Billy Graham or, or Mother Teresa. We're only responsible for our role. Like I had a buddy that he has 14 years of difficulty with this one issue. And I'm like, man, I spent eight days with you, Bill. You're not making any progress. So we can't have those expectations for ourselves that are unrealistic. So maybe you're not the person that's supposed to get them from negative 10 to positive 10. Maybe you're the negative 4 to negative 2 person that just takes them take another step in their faith that gets them closer to receiving Christ. In the timeline, zero is their acceptance of Christ. Negative 1 is they're almost there. Positive 1 is they've made that decision and they're starting their trajectory going forward. Maybe you've had the opportunity to take them, someone from negative one to positive one. You've got to see that and hear that conversion story. How great is that? I would love to hear that story. So ultimately, we don't want to try to quantify ahead of time what we're supposed to do. We, we want to love God and love our neighbor. Come what may. I love the way the message paraphrase breaks this down in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 and these are verses you probably know in other translations but with the message paraphrase it says this so here's what I want you to do God helping you not alone God helping you take your everyday ordinary life you're sleeping you're eating you're going to work and you're walking around life and place it before God as an offering Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Other translations talk about this being true 
in proper worship. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Let him turn your mess into a message. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Big faith. Readily recognize what he wants for you, from you and quickly respond to it. Allow the ambush. Take a step towards big faith. I want to end with Galatians chapter 1, verse 23. But they only kept hearing, the man who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Paul wrote that. The guy that persecuted Christians. The guy that was led by the hand blind. The guy that was doing all that, but God chose as his instrument. He went from all that to God being glorified because of him. So who do you glorify God for because of them? One of mine is uh, my brother Heath that does Watchmen of the Streets. Does some amazing stuff. He shows people love in some hard places. Glorify God because of Heath. There's lots of people on that list. So glorifying God because of Paul, but that happened because one man obediently gave a reluctant yes to the opportunity the Lord gave him. Ananias reluctantly said yes. And then we have the story of Paul. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for our individual personal ministries, whether we're actively involved in them or, or just realizing them for the first time today, Lord. We ask that you use us in our relational circles of family, work, and play, and divine appointments. Father, we, we thank you for the story, the, the account of Ananias and Paul and all the, the, the great heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. We pray that you give us the courage to take risks and to talk to people about Jesus, Father, regardless of the setting. Help us recognize your timing and your placement, Father. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, our Father, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In your holy name we pray. Amen.